Hi, everyone. This is Frank Rock with another special episode of the From the Hack podcast. I hope you're doing well. I hope that uh, those of you that are not involved in essential services are staying home. And I wanted to take a moment to personally thank some of the curlers that are also healthcare professionals, including Carrie Ann McTaggart of Team Scheidegger, who is a registered nurse, Vicky Wright of Team Muirhead, who is a general surgical nurse in Scotland, Lee Toner, who was a fifth for Team Jacobs at the recent Briar in Kingston, and who also happens to be an emergency physician, and Lorraine Schneider, who skipped a team out of Saskatchewan this past season, and who is a respiratory therapist. My guest today is Bob Weeks, who is one of the more respected curling and golf journalists in the country. We discuss a few curling topics, and we also discuss some of the hot-button topics in golf. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams at the World Championships and at Nationals in Canada and the U.S., well, the answer is provided by Jedice, whose in-ice graphics from Easy and Textile logos to the world-famous Jedice Full House product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much-needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and Textile logos are the industry standard for high-quality logos and they're a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedice customizable full houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. Jedi's. They bring ice to life. Bob, I guess it's a sign of the times, but before we talk about curling and golf, uh, the first and most important question I want to ask you is how are you doing and how are you coping with being quarantined during this uh, global pandemic that we're dealing with? Yeah, I um, I was down covering the Players' Championship, uh, the PGA Tour event, and uh, everything kind of <laughs> went, went very quickly from having a tournament the first round with lots of people following big galleries to uh, everything being cancelled, and I jumped on a plane and came back to Toronto, and I've been... Uh, self-isolating basically in quarantine i have not actually gone out of my house since that time so it's uh it's a little surreal but um you know i got some jigsaw puzzles i got some good books and netflix and amazon prime and all that like i'm sure pretty much everybody has and um and we're we're doing all right like my my quarantine ends on the weekend so uh hopefully i'll be able to uh, at least maybe get out for a run or or a short walk and self-isolate and keep the distance and all that so it's uh, it's a strange time for sure all right, so now let's turn to some uh, curling, Bob. Uh, in the media scrum after his team had won their third briar in four years in Kingston, Brad Gushu was asked the question of whether he thought his team was a dynasty now that they had won those three briars in four years, and he said that was for other people to decide. Seeing that you're one of the historians of the sport and you've uh, followed the sport for many years now, do you think that by winning their third briar in four years that Team Gushu has staked their claim to being one of the better teams in Canadian history? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, you're talking about perhaps the most competitive time in the history of the sport. Um, not that there haven't been good teams in the past, but I think there's more good teams right now. And the fact that they play each other every week and they play, um, you know, a, a whole year long. So you, there's no hiding. You don't, there's no one surprising what the other team is going to be. So when you're taking on the best in a briar and you're winning that over a long stretch, I, I always think, you know, with, with the Grand Slams are big events and they're tough events. Um, but the Briar is, is, is a bit of a marathon, and I always think it's interesting to see the players who can kind of mentally handle it 
And I think that's one of the big things by not just Brad's team. Brad's team does it very well. But the very, very best teams are the ones who can mentally get through a long week, whether it be a, a Briar or a World Championship. So, um, yeah, they're, they're definitely now in, uh, in curling history and, uh, and, and stake their claim to a, to a rightful spot with three Briars in four years. I mean, it's, that's pretty good. And, and they're just really, I don't know want to say they're hitting their prime, but they're, they're certainly in, at the peak of their, of their abilities right now. They don't show any signs of, of, of less, letting up at all. So it's going to be impressive to see what they can do over the next couple of years as well. Typically, the curling landscape changes at the end of each Olympic cycle when there's a large turnover in teams, and we don't usually see a bunch of lineup changes during the cycle itself. What did you make of all the lineup changes that were announced on both the women's and the men's sides in the days following the end of the Briar in Kingston this year, especially amongst some of the elite teams, uh, Holman and Kui as examples? Does it surprise you that so many teams made significant changes mid-cycle? It does, and you know, I, I was I was thinking about this for a while um, recently when you when you saw everything kind of going left, right, and center, and players switching around, especially on the women's side of things. I think it's it's tough, you know, I, it's it's tough to change midstream because obviously, as you say, you're getting close to Olympic, and that seems to be what everyone shoots for. Um, the one thing that that does come up though now is you know it's a long year. It's a it's a, it's not like ten or fifteen years ago when you might play. I don't know, 10 events for the year or 12 events. Now you're playing basically every weekend. And I think a lot of the team dynamic now is is more focused. So if you've got a personality on your team that doesn't gel with the other team or you're, you know, someone on your team has, has maybe five years ago was a great person, but their life has changed and they're doing something different and maybe the commitment's not there, um, that at least the other three people might not think, might think the commitment's not there. And I think more than anything, that is what drives a lot of these changes right now. It's not so much that the player isn't capable or isn't a good player. It's more that they just don't fit into the team dynamic. And, you know, if you're going to if you're gonna be out there every week, if you're going to be on the road with them, if you're going to be traveling, if you're going to be uh, trying to win money to cover your expenses and hopefully make a few bucks, uh, you want to have the best team out there. And the, and the best team involves off the ice just as much as it does on the ice. Many people point to the 1998 Winter Olympics as a turning point for the sport of curling. It's at that point that several countries, Canada included, began investing more money into curling because it was now an Olympic sport. The result is that Canada has remained very good, but several other countries have closed the gap significantly. They may not have Canada's depth, but they certainly can compete with Canada's team at the elite level. The following might ruffle some feathers, Bob, here in Canada, but is it not good for the sport to have more countries that have a legitimate chance at winning championships in both the men's and women's games? Yeah, there's. I think there's two parts to that answer, and the first one is I think it's great to see the sport uh, growing globally. I think it's great to see sporting federations from different countries, you know, spending a lot of money, and a lot of that money is going to, let's face it, Canadian coaches and Canadian athletes. A lot of that money is going for training in Canada. Um, they're playing the majority of the Grand Slam events. You know, they're a lot of the, those top teams are playing in those events here, so they're they're bringing. Uh, the competitive stuff, and it's only made the game better. Listen, you know, it's never been played as well as, as it has right now, both on the men's and the women's side. Um, I, I like that part of it. I think the, the sad part for me or the, the eyebrow-raising part for me is that we're seeing all these these countries uh, who are not, let's say, from, who don't have traditional curling backgrounds. There's nothing really that, you know, 25, 30 years ago nobody would have curled in the country, and now you're seeing people winning world championships and Olympic challengers. But you're not seeing it develop at the grassroots. So if there's anything that, that I'm upset about, it's the fact that um, outside of the United States, really, there's no real big growth in, in grassroots curling, club curling, um, you know, go out and slide on your knee and have a beer afterwards kind of curling. And I think that's 
where um, the only part that really upsets me. I think it's great to see teams from all over the world um, playing better because I think it makes it makes Canadian curlers better. It makes them work a little harder. And I think it's also kind of forced Curling Canada's hand a little bit to, to take a look at their programs and how they're developing. I mean, we don't, we don't develop our players as much um, as the international teams do, at least some of the older teams. I think a few of the younger teams are coming in and they're getting better coaching. It reminds me of hockey a number of years ago when, when Canada used to go to the World Championships and the Olympics and, and not win anything and it would come back, and we really had to kind of reinvent how we taught curling and how we, or how we taught hockey, and I think that's the same approach that we've been doing now for a little while in curling, and I think Curling Canada realizes that, you know, you gotta, you got to make changes. We've got to get better coaching at younger levels. We're, we're seeing now championships for younger players. Um, in the old days, it was sort of Little Rocks was the, was the only real development program we had, but now it's, it's really fostered out there. Um, you know, the only thing I can see that I hear from the players that might be lacking right now is perhaps to have the Olympic trials a little earlier so there's more time to prepare for something as big as the Olympic Games, and that, that may come sooner than later. To set up my next question, Bob, I just wanted to remind our audience that you wrote a book about the Briar a few years ago, and you've always followed that event and the Scotties quite closely. Now, as recently as a decade ago, the Briar could sell out a 15,000-plus-seat arena in Edmonton, Calgary, and other cities. And what we've seen over the past few years are much smaller crowds uh, at the Briar and, and at the Scotties. Uh, even the 6,000-seat Leon's place in Kingston was only sold out for a handful of draws. Are we now past a point, Bob, where we will see huge crowds at curling events, especially in a day and age where there are so many other viewing options for curling, such as cable TV, online streaming services, and others? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that have changed since uh, since those times in the heydays when you know they used to sell out Calgary and Edmonton and Regina and those places like that. Um, you know, it's first of all, the, the curling audience has always traditionally been a little bit older, and uh, those older people are getting much older now, and so they're not as likely to come and travel and watch a curling event when they can see it on television. You know, kudos to all my, uh, my friends at TSN who are, who are broadcasting it. We do such a superb job really of broadcasting it that in a lot of cases, if you're say an elderly person, why, why would I want to go down to the rink and sit in the cold and, uh, and not really know exactly what's going on when I can sit at home in my easy chair and, and hear the microphones and hear Vic and Cheryl and, uh, and Russ and Brian and Kathy, you know, and uh, so so television has been uh, both a blessing and a curse. I mean, the numbers the numbers of viewers for television has still remained sky high. That's the one constant that they've had with with the coverage. I think Curling Canada is making huge steps to try and attract and widen the audience right now. Um, that Curling Day in Canada, which I've been associated with the last two days, we've done a lot of of uh, features during that show on groups that you wouldn't traditionally think of as, as curlers, you know, people who are new Canadians, uh, people from minority groups, people from all different walks of life, and a big push on younger people to try and get them into it. And, and I think it's having some, some effect. I mean, I think we're also seeing in a lot of places a, a transition um, of curling, you know, from the club level, let's say, where I, where I grew up curling was part of a golf and country club, and that curling club is gone, like a number of them here in Toronto have, have kind of gone. But now the curling clubs, the standalone curling clubs, are, are packed. And in a lot of cases, they're packed with younger people, uh, millennial people who are coming out to try the game, and they're, they're seeing it on television. Now, that's the type of people that you want to try and attract and take into the audiences and show them what a good time you can have at a briar. But, but they don't know that. They've never experienced it like, like we all have as older people. You know what the patch is like, and you know what it's, how much fun it can be to go for a day. So uh, I think that's a big part of it. And I think the other part is that, you know, people in the old days used to go for the whole week. They used to go for seven or eight days. They'd buy a package and they'd 
watch curling and they you know travel around here and there but um in the, in the host city but now you know people will go for the opening weekend or they'll go for a night or they'll go for two days people just don't have the time to commit uh, for a week-long package so so that affects sales as well but um i i can assure you it's not it's not something that the the powers that be haven't noticed and, and have tried to rectify but it's not uh, it's not something easy and i think you may have to accept the fact that um, you know, the curling's, curling's not going to be back to where it was perhaps back when the, we filled the Calgary Saddle Dome and places like that. It's going to be a, a perfect event for a 6,000-seat arena or a 5,000-seat arena like in Kingston, uh, like in Kelowna, like in Kamloops, like in those smaller centers where it becomes the big focus of the town as opposed to, you know, if you took it to Calgary where it's, it's one event amongst a number of big ones. If you're looking to buy some new curling equipment, look no further than Hardline. They offer premium curling equipment that is a choice of the world's top curlers. Whether it's the U.S. Olympic gold medalist, Team Schuster, or women's Olympic gold medalist, Sweden's Team Hasselberg. Or how about the top Canadian teams, Briar Champs, Team Cooey, Team Gushu, Team Jacobs, Team Carruthers, and world champions, Team Adine and Team Tiranzoni. Hardline's new composite broom, the Hybrid Helium, is the lightest composite broom on the market, and it's perfect for beginners. Hardline also offers a full range of equipment to get you playing your best, including shoes, apparel, and the Pro Slide Delivery Aid designed by Reed Carruthers. Visit their website at www.hardlinecurling.com and join the revolution. For those in our audience that might not be aware, Bob Weeks is also one of Canada's preeminent golf journalists, and he's covered the sport for many years for TSN and other media outlets. I couldn't have Bob on the podcast and not chat with him about golf. Here's that part of our conversation. When we first started the interview, Bob, you mentioned that you were the Players' Championship in Florida when COVID-19 really started getting the world's attention, which led to the cancellation of the players after one round of play. Since then, there's been much talk about whether people should be allowed on golf courses during the quarantine period. You ran a poll on Twitter the other day, and I was surprised by the fact that almost 60% of respondents felt like people should be allowed on golf courses during this period of social distancing. So what's your take on that, Bob? Do you think people should be out on golf courses in this uh, period of quarantine and uh, social distancing? Well, it's uh, it's certainly a big question right now, and, and in most places it, it doesn't really matter because uh, the governments have closed the golf courses along with everything else. Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, uh, you know, in most of those places the golf season hadn't started yet, but if and when it does, um, it, well, it won't because they're, <laughs> they've been ordered closed. So it's in British Columbia where it's kind of a hot spot. Uh, Alberta is also um, still open, but I'm not, I'm not sure there are many courses open there just yet. But, you know, it's – I, I – I don't think we should be golfing. I think that it's there's still enough risk out there. And yes, you're outdoors. And yes, you're uh, perhaps playing. You know, if you if you take all the precautions, the courses that are open have removed the bunker rakes. They're telling people don't you know don't touch the pin. Uh, the ball washers are all kind of taped closed, so you don't can't use those. There's no staff essentially in the in the clubhouse. There's no uh, food services. So they're taking a lot of precautions. And and probably in that way, if you feel it's safe, that you sh- you can get out there and golf. I wouldn't go unless I was going by myself. And even then, I'm not sure because, it, you know, if I go and play golf, it means someone's got to come out and maintain the golf course. So there, I might be putting someone else at risk if that crew has to come in and cut the greens or uh, do something like that. So, you know, the golf season is going to be is going to be around at some point this year. And uh, and I think I'll just sit tight and wait. But I, I, don't, I don't begrudge anybody who sees it differently and wants to go out and play. It's just not something that I think I'm going to do. I think it's fair to say that most of the top golfers on the PGA Tour are going to be fine, even if they miss several months of action. However, I'm wondering how this pandemic will impact others involved in the sport of golf. The women on the LPGA Tour, as an example, players on smaller tours, caddies, and others involved in the sport. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a financial uh, financial question. I spoke with Elena Sharp, who's uh, an LPGA Tour player, Canadian veteran, been on the Olympics uh, last time out, and was is going to be on the next Olympic team, whatever that is. Um, but it's it's you know she said uh, even on the LPGA Tour, and she's a uh, you know a mid ranked player. She said she'd be okay for three or four months, but after that it'll start to get a little bit tight. And so um, if you're on something lower than that, it's definitely going to impact you. It, it, I'll tell you where it's really going to impact is on golf course operators in, in this country because a lot of them do not make a ton of money. Uh, they need every week they can to, to get revenue and, and get green fees. So if you're perhaps open now, if you're a golf course in British Columbia, you're open, but um, you, be, you end up being forced closed, you know, that's, that's a big hit. And, um, and I, think, I think you're going to see – I spoke to one golf, uh, provincial golf official who said that he thinks up to between 20 and 25% of the golf courses in his province could could end up going bankrupt, and um, just because of the if, if this lasts too long, if it lasts, let's say, into July or something like that, uh, travel and tourism. There's a lot of impact. Golf golf is a big uh, financial sport in Canada. The uh, the GDP is uh, something like 11 billion dollars a year to the GDP. So, you know, there's a lot of impact on golf, and um, and it's an, an important industry in a, in a, as a small industry. But uh, without knowing when the season's going to start or when you're going to play. Uh, lots of people, caddies, golf course operators, players are all going to be uh, feeling the pinch. But listen, there's there's everybody out there is feeling the pinch right now, and and I think it's a it's a scary time for sure. One of the hot topics in the sport of golf uh, before the season got suspended was the fact that the U.S. Golf Association and the RNA in Scotland were considering some rule changes that would impact equipment. In short, there is a growing concern that existing equipment has essentially made most golf courses defenseless against the top pros who can hit the ball over most of the existing trouble on courses. Do you think we're headed down a road, Bob, where the USGA and the RNA might implement some new rules that will put limitations on the type of equipment that can be used on major tours? Yeah, it's uh, it's a big question right now, and and obviously players, the top players, the Rory McIlroys and the Brooks Koepkas and the John Roms are hitting it so far right now that, as you said, they're really taking a lot of the danger out of the golf courses. They're uh, hitting short irons into some of the longer holes. They're driving par fours, and uh, you know you wonder if that sort of takes the skill out or if it removes the challenge of the way the golf course was designed. But on the other hand, you know it's you're really talking about 0.01% of all the golfers who are who are in that category. So do you change the rules and affect guys like you and me who, listen, I'd love to hit it 10 yards further off the tee, and I don't want it to be going, I don't want it to be going shorter. I want it to be going longer for me. So do you do, you do that, or do you have what's called bifurcation, which is a little bit like what they have in baseball where, you know, in colleges you can use metal bats, but you can't, you can only use wooden bats in the, in the big leagues. So, um, there's a lot of questions out there, and there's a big study that was about to be released on the distance uh, that they call it the distance project, and it's uh, basically done by the two governing bodies, the United States Golf Association and the RNA of Scotland. And once that comes out, I think it'll be it'll be interesting. But there's so many people involved in this, from players to manufacturers to golf courses to uh, superintendents, the way they groom the golf courses. Um, there's a lot. There's no one easy answer here that that's a simple fix. So. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see if they really can get through and make any changes or if they put maybe just a cap on where things are right now. And, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll know that probably within a year or so. So I guess what you're saying is we shouldn't be expecting persimmon clubs to be making a comeback anytime soon. <laughs> I don't think so, no. I think you're, <laughs> I think you're safe with the big Berthas and the, and the, and the tailor-mades and everything, all the metal stuff. It's, it's still going to be legal. 
A proposed new golfing league called the Premier Golf League uh, received a fair bit of attention over the past few months. However, recently, Rory McIlroy, John Rahm, and Brooks Kepka, who are currently ranked in the top three in the world, all indicated that they have no interest in joining the PGL. Was that a death blow to this new league, this new concept, or do you think it still might have a chance of getting off the ground? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting idea. Basically, what it was was a sort of team golf played in a league. There was 18 weeks of, uh, of play and then some playoffs, and... Um, you would have a, a team just like you would in football or baseball or something like that, and your team would be comprised of X number of players. Uh, there would also be an individual competition, but the highlight would be this team concept, I guess. And it was backed by money from the Middle East, and uh, that was one of the things that made Rory McIlroy uncomfortable, and also the fact that you couldn't pick your schedule. Right now, the top players play you know, somewhere around 18 to 20 events a year. They make a pretty good living at it. Um, they might do appearances and make a few more dollars here and there if they need to. But, um, you know, there's no real upside for a guy like Rory McIlroy or, or, or Kepka or John Rahm. It's interesting to me that two prominent players have not said anything, and that's Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Uh, they haven't come out on either side. And you see guys who are still big names, but maybe on the downside of their career uh, talent-wise. It's hard to say that with both those guys. But, you know, their, their best days are probably behind them. So maybe they would be marquee players who might be interested. Uh, but I think once the big three, the top three ranked players in the world right now came out and said they weren't going to be a part of it, it's it's made it very, very difficult for this thing to survive if it isn't, hasn't already sort of been driven with a stake through its heart. So I wanted to shift the focus to Canadian golf for a moment and ask you about a young lady whose career you followed pretty closely, uh, Brooke Henderson. First of all, she seems to be so mature and well-balanced for her age. Uh, is that a fair assessment, Bob? And and secondly, what do you see as her career potential? She currently has nine LPGA titles, including one major. Uh, do you believe she still has a long way to go before hitting her peak, which might be scary to other golfers on the LPGA Tour? Uh, yeah, she's an absolutely delightful person. She's uh, very courteous, very polite, uh, obviously been brought up very well. Um, she's She does have this sort of very sweet side when you talk to her off the golf course and beautiful smile and, uh, you know, just, just a really fun person to talk, as is her sister, uh, Brit, uh, Brittany, who's also uh, her caddy. Uh, but Brooke also has this kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, like hard focus that she can she can call up. She just dials it in and she gets committed to shots and to her game. And she's one of those players, even at a young age, she's only 21 years old, who can really perform under the pressure. And it's it's really amazing to watch. It doesn't happen all the time, but I would say about 75 to 80 percent of the time when she's in a pressure situation, she'll pull off an absolutely remarkable shot. And that is something um, that is pretty rare in, in the golf world. So. Uh, the upside for her is is big. Uh, as I said, she's only 21 years old, and I think she may have the opportunity. Um, I would I would say she may have the opportunity to win at least another nine times. She's won nine already, and she could probably win majors. That's I know is her ne- next big focus right now. She wants to try and win uh, major championships, and um, she's proven she can win one with the PGA and also win that Canadian Women's Open, being right in the hunt in front of thousands of fans out in the frigid cold. Uh, Regina a couple of years ago, so um, she's really fun to watch, really fun to listen to, and a really uh, a real bright bright star in the golfing community. On the men's side, a couple of youngish uh, Canadian players have had strong results already this season. Nick Taylor has won an event on the PGA Tour, his second of his career, and Corey Connors seemed to be in the mix almost every weekend early this season. Are they the real deal? Do you, do you think they will have some staying power on the PGA Tour? 
Yeah, I think I think Corey Connors has got a huge upside. He's so straight, and and he you know he just wears out the middle of the fairway, wears out the middle of the green, and if his putter gets hot at all, he he contends. Um, same thing with Nick. Nick's, Nick to me is finally starting to show through. Like he's a really good player. The guy that I like and I think is going to be the consistent star will be Adam Hadwin. He's uh, he's got a lot of drive. He's got a lot really good swing, and and he's got some some tenacity in him as well. And finally, Bob, I can't let you go without asking you about Tiger Woods' uh, historic victory at the 2019 Masters. Uh, first, what was it like to be at Augusta National to cover Tiger's win last year? And two, do you think we should still have high expectations for Tiger, or do you think he'll be good for short spurts like he was at the Masters, but will find it hard to be consistently good like he was in his prime? He's uh, he's certainly an amazing athlete to watch, and I've been lucky enough to cover him right from basically the time he turned pro uh, right through. I, I can't remember. The, I think I've been to... 11 of his 15 major championships wins. Uh, that one was pretty special. Um, coming coming back from the lows that he has, some of those self-inflicted, obviously, and some of those from the back surgeries and pain. Um, you know, I think I think it was it was um, doubtful that he would even play again at certain points. And now to come back and see him win another major championship was, was absolutely stunning. And um, the atmosphere around that place is always special, but I've never seen it or felt it as, as wild as it was that day when, uh, when Tiger <laughs> finally raised up his arms and, and won that, that green jacket again. He, as for the future, you know, he's going to be limited. He, he's admitted that, and we've already seen that after he won the Masters. You know, the next couple of tournaments, he, he was not good. U.S. Open, Open Championship, uh, PGA were all kind of played in cooler weather, sometimes frigid weather, in terms of the you know, Open Championship, and his back just wouldn't let him swing the way he wanted to. We saw that a little bit at the start of, of this year when we were still playing. You know, it's it's he's going to be a hit or miss. He's going to be he's going to show up sometimes, and he's going to be ready to play, and the body will allow him to do it. And other times, it's it's just not going to happen. And you know, it's it's like a curler with a bad knee. Some days you can go out there and play and not have to worry about it, and and some days it just won't let you slide comfortably. So. That's kind of the, uh, the analogy I can use for for those who aren't so detailed into uh, into golf. But um, but I tell you, he's he's offered up a lot of great moments. And if there's one thing I've learned over my career in covering golf, it's that just never underestimate what Tiger is going to do next because he's just simply will will defy you and and just like he did last year by winning the Masters. My thanks to Bob Weeks for coming on for this special episode of the From the Hack podcast. I'll be back later this weekend with another special episode. In the meantime, be well and stay safe.